Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your greatness and your tender mercies toward us as a nation. We are what we are today by the grace of God, and yet we know at the same time our country is experiencing something of the judgment of God. And Lord, it has nothing to do with the sermon today, but it seems appropriate on this day that we would plead with you for mercy for our country. And Lord, that you would revive in this land the preaching of your word. May, may your spirit come and do what he once did through the ministry of the great preachers of the past who lit up this country with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, bring us to a place where our only hope is to look up to you and to find in you and from you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if that is not your plan, I pray that you would help us to be faithful anyway, whether by life or by death. Be glorified in us, Lord, and may we look to men like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of what it means to live in a culture that is contrary to Christianity and willing to put you in jail or even to death, and yet be faithful. May we be found faithful. And may even this morning, as we look at the life of Epaphroditus, may it encourage us to be faithful even as he was. Lord, we pray all of these things for your glory and for our faithful joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm eager to look into the Word of God with you this morning. I've been refreshed by this passage already this week, and, and I am eager to see you refreshed by this text as well. And so turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be considering verses 25 through 30, and by God's grace, if we make it that far today, we will finish <laughs> chapter 2. Um, Paul is coming to the end of a two-year period of incarceration in a Roman prison. He knows that the final verdict on his case is about to be passed down from the emperor, which will determine whether he is executed or whether he is released. And Timothy is with Paul standing at the ready to take the news of the verdict uh, wherever it needs to go to all of the churches in Asia Minor and in Rome and everywhere else. Also with Paul at this time is a young man whose name is Epaphroditus. Unlike Paul, who was called a Hebrew of Hebrews, and unlike Timothy, whose mother was a Jewess, and his father was a Gentile, so he was of mixed blood, unlike them, Epaphroditus was a full Gentile, like me. Uh, no Jewish blood in him whatsoever. And he was from the city of Philippi, a member of the church that bears that name, which Paul himself had planted. Now, the name of Epaphroditus is not a, a name that we talk about much. We don't know much about him. We know that uh, his name was a very common Greek name in the first century. It means beloved by Aphrodite. How would you like to have that name? It might also be handsome or lovely or charming or maybe even lucky. In fact, uh, when gamblers would roll the dice, they would yell out, Epaphrodites! Um, this is the way it was in that, in that world. You were named sometimes after uh, members of the Greek Parthenon. 
And Aphrodite was a goddess of, of things that we don't even want to talk about here in worship service. Paul's letter to the Philippians is the only place that Epaphroditus is mentioned in the New Testament. There is another brother by the name of Epaphras, who some believe um, was the same man. You'll read about him in Colossians. But most commentators believe that these are entirely different individuals. The reason Epaphroditus was in Rome was because the church of Philippi sent him to take the news and financial, whatever news about the church, and financial support to the apostle while he was in jail. We know that because of chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. So let's turn over there for just a second. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. This is what we read. Paul writing, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, referring to money, except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs uh, once and again. Verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he ends with this statement telling us why Epaphroditus was sent. He was sent to encourage the Apostle Paul, to minister to the Apostle Paul, to bring news about the church, and to bring this financial gift. But Epaphroditus was not merely a mailman or a package delivery boy. He was an official representative of the church of Philippi sent to minister to the great apostle. And he, he would have been a man whose, whose hand would carry this very letter called the book of Philippians. He was the brother, no doubt, who would carry this letter all the way back to Philippi and would deliver it to the elders, I presume, of that church. Now last week we emphasized the need for believers to identify men like this, men of godliness, noble character, sincere faith, and imitate them. Find out what we can about their faithful life and strive to live like they did. Strive to live like Paul. And Paul says this, and you remember I pointed us to chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Find faithful men. You want to figure out how to put shoe leather to the clear teachings of the Word of God? Watch people who are doing a good job of it and follow them. I believe it is the will of the Spirit of Jesus for us to consider the lives of Paul and Timothy and now Epaphroditus Identify their Christ-like qualities and imitate their faith. Why? Here's the key. I believe we should because growth in Christ was never meant to be pursued alone, in a vacuum. Sanctification is often the fruit of imitation. Now granted, we've got to be careful who we imitate. We've got to be discerning. But once we've been discerning and chosen well, Uh, The Apostle Paul seems to be calling us even to human heroes. People, we look at their life and we just say, i got to be more like that. I I remember a time when I was at uh, Master's College and I got to meet Daniel Wong. And I thought, man, just to say hello to this brother. Daniel Wong, 
uh, grew up in China, uh, persecuted church, persecuted family. And I think I've told you this story before. Uh, one day, the Red Guard, the Red Army, uh, a squadron came and surrounded his house when he was young and uh, demanded of his father that he give up his Bible. And he didn't have his Bible. He'd given it to someone to keep it safe in case something like this would happen. They didn't believe him, so they tore the house apart. They ripped out the walls. They threw out the furniture. Everything went out on the street. Couldn't find the Bible. Uh, Brother Wong was the youngest son in the family, youngest child, I think. And uh, so the, the commander went to his parents and said, if you don't give up your Bible, we will beat your oldest son to death. And they did in front of Daniel. He saw his brother beaten to death. Well, long story short, in the providence of God, he ended up escaping uh, by God's grace. A fascinating story. Came to America, got his doctorate at Dallas Theological Seminary while I was there working on my degree. Didn't know him, never heard of him. It wasn't until uh, just before I started going to school at Master's College that I heard the story of this man who would pray two hours a day. And then I realized, this, this guy's on staff out at Master's, and I'm going to go out there. Wouldn't it be great just to shake his hand and meet him? And I saw him in the dining hall one day, and I sat down with him. And, uh, and I said, I just wanted to say hello. I, I heard your testimony. So convicting to me. Bless you, brother. I don't want to interrupt your lunch. And he said, brother, sit with me. Let's have lunch. And we talked for over an hour. The next day, the same thing, invited me to lunch again and just poured into me. And I came away thinking, God, I know this isn't Jesus. This isn't the Apostle Paul. This is a fallible man. But there are things in his life I want them in mine. And that's what Paul is saying. There are things in Epaphroditus' life that you should want to be in your life. You should want them to be true about you. And so let's begin our study today by reading the passage. Let's stand together in honor of God's word. We'll be starting with verse 25 of chapter 2. And here's what we read, Philippians 2, 25. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all, or y'all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. As Paul pens this letter to the Philippians, we, are, we find ourselves kind of looking over his shoulder. He's not really speaking to us, only by inference and by illustration. And we make inferences regarding the men about whom Paul writes, and we find ourselves asking, in what specific ways did they live that are worthy of imitation? In this passage, the first characteristic of the life of Epaphroditus the reason that he is worthy of imitation is this. Number one, he exemplified spiritual balance. He exemplifi exemplified spiritual balance. 
Uh, I want you to notice the first five terms Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus. He calls him brother, worker, soldier, messenger, and minister. Brother, soldier, uh, brother, worker, soldier, messenger, and minister. Well, clearly Paul is going out of his way to affirm the life and character of Epaphroditus. Paul's purpose here is not to build up or encourage Epaphroditus so much as to inform the leaders of the church of Philippi how honorably Epaphroditus has served since he's been in Rome. And there is the reason that Paul sensed the need to do that. You see, he was about to send Epaphroditus home early. He was about to send him home prematurely. And he needed to give explanation why. When the Philippians sent Epaphroditus on this long journey to Rome with the financial gift and news about the church, they were not expecting him to return. Maybe not ever, but certainly not in any small amount of time. Rather, they expected that he would stay with Paul in Rome for some time, ministering to Paul on their behalf because they were his beloved church. However, Paul was sending him home. It's the whole point of this section. Paul is sending him home prematurely, and he knows that if there is not an official explanation of why he's back, some are going to be tempted to think that he failed his mission. Some are going to be tempted to interrogate him, to find out how he, he blew it, how he missed what he was sent to accomplish. And Paul wants to send a very clear and authoritative message, a testimony that nothing could be further from the truth. Epaphroditus has not failed in the mission for which you sent him. Epaphroditus was an honorable brother who not only fulfilled his purpose, but was worthy of honor. And we'll discover why as we go along. Now, what do we mean when we say Epaphroditus was spiritually balanced? Well, the five monikers that Paul attaches to his name paint somewhat of a picture for us, and let's just walk through these a little bit. Number one, he calls him brother. He calls him brother. Now, this is not just a generic synonym for Christian. He doesn't say, uh, I want you to know that Epaphroditus is a Christian. <laughs> well, they knew that before they sent him. It's not just Christian. It's, it's used here to convey Paul's unique fellowship and affection for Epaphroditus personally. It's a brotherliness that was forged in the throes of common work and common conflict. When it came to ministry, Epaphroditus was all, all business. Um, he was a hard worker. But he wasn't, merely, he wasn't merely about biblical strategies and hard work and sound doctrine. He was a man who also valued fellowship. He not only worked with Paul, he not only worked for Paul, but he fellowshiped with Paul. Paul, Paul is saying to the church of Philippi, this brother has become my brother. We don't know exactly how long Paul enjoyed his company, but it was long enough to forge a personal bond between them. And by calling him brother, Paul hints at the deep affection and love that he had developed, or maybe God had developed between them. 
And then he calls him fellow worker. This term speaks emphatically of the kind of Christian who proves himself worthy by working hard. And even though I have just said he wasn't only a hard worker, we got we, we to gotta be convinced by this that he was that. He was a hard worker. He worked hard for the gospel. Unfortunately, this cannot be said for every believer. And probably not every believer in the church of Philippi. It should be said of every believer because we're all called to serve the Lord in active ministry to the church and the world. But many Christians are satisfied merely to show up on Sunday morning, enjoy the spiritual nourishment, and go home and live their lives in comfort and ease and never really work for the gospel. Not Epaphroditus. He knew what it meant to be in the trenches for the glory of Christ. He knew what it meant to, as Paul would say, to spend and be spent for the glory of Christ. And that's why he was in Rome. That's why he was there to begin with. And so Paul calls him a fellow worker, and then he calls him fellow soldier. Paul's suggesting that Epaphroditus was his comrade in arms. They weren't just sitting around having kumbaya time. They weren't only fellowshipping. And, fellow, and part of the point here is fellowship is not the only thing that, um, that Epaphroditus had to bring to the table. He also knew how to work. He had skill in ministry. And not only that, but he had courage. He was willing to be a soldier. And Paul's suggesting that, that he was somewhat of a comrade in arms. The term refers, this fellow soldier, refers to one who serves in arduous tasks or undergoes severe experiences together with someone else for a common cause. It was originally a military term to describe those who fight side by side. Except for him, it was a relationship that was formed between Paul and, the, and Epaphroditus as they ministered in a, in a somewhat hostile environment. There Paul is in jail, or at least house arrest. I, I think he got moved to the prison. And you can imagine the pressures they were under. And he already told us about uh, the, the, the evangelical preachers who were already causing him problems. I mean, the Paul, Paul's still alive. I mean, isn't it amazing how quick false doctrine and bad attitudes come to play in the Christian church? Already there are men in Rome preaching, and they're not getting the gospel wrong. They're just doing it for the wrong reason. They're doing it somehow to injure Paul. And so it was a dangerous work, it was a difficult work, and yet Epaphroditus didn't flinch. He stood by Paul. Here it speaks of a co-worker for the gospel who has conflicts, perhaps even adversities. Not only that, but enemies. And together with Paul, they serve and they work side by side. Paul, you remember, is also ministering to the guards I don't know about you, but in my ministry of the word, not everybody is eager to receive it. When I talk to people who come from the outside and they have problems and want help, you give them the word of God, and they're not always happy to hear it. They don't always want what we have to offer when we give them the word of God. And you've got to know that was true perhaps with some of the soldiers there. I mean, there were a host of people who could cause problems for them. And even though they had an effective ministry, yet we know it was a hard ministry. 
It's likely that Epaphroditus experienced personal trials and maybe even imprisonment himself as he assisted Paul in his missionary labors. He shared not only in the work, but in the hardship itself, suffering beside Paul. And so these three titles, brother, worker, and soldier, they, they grow in intensity. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a stair step upward. It's brother, not, not just brother, but worker. Not just worker, but soldier. And then not only that, but he was a messenger. Messenger here is an interesting word, and you're going to understand it as soon as I say it. In the Greek, it is apostolos. It's the word from which we get apostle. The term originally referred to the 12 apostles who were sent out by the Lord to announce his coming and his gospel. They were Christ's apostles. They were his messengers. And here the term is used of those who are messengers or apostoloi of the church. Epaphroditus may not have had that formal title, apostle of the church, but he certainly act like, acted like it. And Paul thought he was worthy of the honor of it. And so he speaks of him in this term, that he was an apostle of Philippi. He came as a messenger, the official messenger of the church of Philippi. And the application for you and me is not necessarily that, that we bring communication from church to church. I mean, we have ways to communicate that are instant, and it doesn't take four months for a letter to go, you know, a thousand miles anymore. But maybe the application of this for us is that we should be we should be prepared and spiritually eligible to do any ministry that needs to be done. There shouldn't be anything that you're unwilling to do and not very many things that you're incapable of doing. It, it's possible to learn how to do things. It's, a, it's possible to learn how to share your faith. It's possible to learn how to, to share your testimony with someone. It's possible to minister to other people in effective ways that open the door for the gospel. There's much to learn and, and much that can be learned. But whatever Epaphroditus was, he was a balanced believer. And in that church, apparently the, the elders of that church, I mean, in every church, this is just my experience in the local church, in, in, in every church that I've been a part of and known about, there's always one or two people who, when you think of, hey, we need someone to do such and such, the same name comes, uh, Bob. Oh, let's call Bob. There's some, you know, who can we have lead children's ministry? Hey, let's call Bob. Who can we get to rebuild the playground? You know what? I bet Bob could do that. You know, this is a reverend multi-gift. <laughs> I mean, he seems like he can do anything. And you know how he learned how to do that? Just by being faithful. Something needs to be done. Hey, can you help me? Can you help me learn how to do this? I want to learn how to do this. Now, how do I organize a ministry? Can I just watch you? Can I sit with you as you plan this? How do, I, how do I minister to children effectively? You know, what do you do? There's things that you shouldn't do when you're ministering to children. There are things that you should do. How are you going to learn that? Watch somebody who does it. Hook up with them. Find out how they do it. Learn from them. And become balanced. And then Paul calls him a minister, a person who renders special service. In the New Testament, this particular term is used of Christ, who ministers as our great high priest. It refers in Romans 13 to civil, civil authorities who were called ministers of God. 
Uh, the angels also, Hebrews 1, are described as ministers to God. Paul himself is called a minister of God, but here it is also applied to Epaphroditus. He's in good company. He's a minister. Epaphroditus was qualified to serve as a minister to an apostle. He was also sent personally to minister to Paul's needs, and apparently he did. As I said, he didn't just arrive to show up with a letter and money. He was qualified to do all kinds of things. There are brothers in this church, I know, if I give them something to do, it's going to be done with quality. I mean, they just have that about, they've got that mindset. I don't know how to do this, but when it's done, it's going to be good. And all the loose ends are going to be tied up. I mean, Epaphroditus was that kind of guy. Give him something to do and it's going to be done. And it's going to be done well. And that's who he was. The term minister was usually reserved in the Bible for priests and Levites in the temple. But here's the thing. In the church, in Christ, every believer is a minister. Because every, every believer is a priest to our God. Every believer is here to represent God to men and men to God. The term is no longer reserved for the priestly order because in the new community of the church, there are no individual priests but because we are a kingdom of priests to our God in which all may enter into the very presence of God and all may stand in the presence of men ministering on behalf of God. And you can do that too. And you should be doing that. And, and can I just say to you believing young people, you believing teenagers, you are a priest in the kingdom of God. Don't be a spectator. Get involved. Do things. Don't you love the fact, I mean, right now, we have more young people serving in ministry, than I've, and significant ministry, uh, than I've seen maybe ever in the life of Calvary Bible Church. Uh, We've got young people who are uh, leading our our media, they're running sound for us. That's never happened before. It's always been older people, old crotchety people like me and you know, David Whiting and, and uh, Charlie Hara. And now look, we've got these young people who are saying, look, we don't know how to do it, but teach us. And there they are. Hey, we don't know how to, we don't know how to run this thing. Teach us and we'll do it. We're just available. Teach me, eager. And that's the way Epaphroditus was. Epaphroditus was a balanced Christian. Balance is important in the Christian life. Warren Wearsby cautions, quote, some people emphasize fellowship so much that they forget the hard work of gospel ministry. And others are so involved in defending the faith of the gospel that they neglect building fellowship with other believers. And, and you could kind of go through this with all the disciplines. You're so busy talking about God's Word that you never really read God's Word. Uh, you could go right on down the line through the spiritual disciplines. And so Epaphroditus was worthy of imitation because, you know, you look at his life and you think, man, how many different things can you do? And how did you learn to do that? And I think the answer to that question is, you just pray, you just pray, God, help me to be faithful in the next opportunity and the next decision. There are some things that I'm going to be asked to do that I'm no good at. Help me to become better at that. If the church needs me to do that, help me to do it with all my heart. Help me never to say, 
I'm not going to do that because I never have done that, or I don't think I can do it. You can probably do an adequate job for the glory of God if you'll just be faithful. Just be faithful. Number two, he was not only balanced, he was moved with compassion for others. Verse 26. Verse 26, here's what we read. For, speaking about Epaphroditus, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now here we need to fill in some gaps in the story. Notice in verse 25 that Paul begins with the following words. I have thought it necessary, that's a critical word here, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. The word necessary means indispensable. It was important to Paul that the Philippians understood from the beginning that the reason Epaphroditus was arriving in Philippi prematurely was because Paul thought it was necessary. In other words, this is not Epaphroditus' choice. Epaphroditus didn't quit. He didn't throw in the towel when, the thing, when things got tough. He didn't abandon his post like John Mark did. Epaphroditus did not fail to fulfill his mission. That's not why he's coming home. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send him. If you want to know why he's home, understand, the apostle Paul sent him. That's what Paul is saying. Well, then why? Why was he sent home? Well, verse 26 tells us. Look at it again. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, uh, because you heard that he was ill. Let me say that again. He has been distressed because you heard he was ill. You see what his, his concern is? It's not a concern about himself. It's a concern about the church who's concerned about him. As best I can put things together, here's how it happened. The leaders of the Philippian church designated Epaphroditus as their official envoy to make the 800-mile journey to Rome to deliver the money they sent for Paul's care. And after he, was, uh, after he got there and, uh, and did that, he became a personal ministry to the, minister to the Apostle Paul. And you, you ask how? Well, in any way necessary. What did Paul need? That's what he did. And so he arrives at Rome, delivers the financial gift, begins ministering to Paul, and honestly, we have no indication in the text about what Paul asked him to do. Perhaps he surely asked him to preach. I mean, you go to any of the churches in the East, and uh, they find out you're a pastor, or you're an elder, or you're a Christian, and they're going to ask you to preach. Remember Eric Mock's story the first time he went over to, uh, I think it was Ukraine, and he got there, he was an administrator for Slavic Gospel Association. He was not a preacher. He had not gone to seminary. He had only been a Christian for a short period of time. He gets there. A, brother, a Russian brother picks him up, and uh, they start communicating as best they can. And, and the brother says, uh, we go to church tonight. And Eric said, good. I look, I look forward to meeting with the brothers. And you will preach. <laughs> and Eric said, no, 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 no. You, you, you got it all wrong. Um, I, I don't preach. I, I'm come, I come to do paperwork and to and handle money. I, I bring you money. <laughs> and, uh, but I don't preach. And the brother looked at him and said, are you a Christian? And Eric said, well, yeah, yes, I'm a Christian. Then you will preach. 
<laughs> I suspect Epaphroditus preached in Rome. I expect he did a lot more than just preach. Maybe he was a key player in the church while he was there. He certainly ministered directly to Paul. Whatever he did, however, he did enough of it for Paul to refer to him back in verse 25 as a brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and minister to my needs. He was busy. In any case, somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus falls ill. I suspect just entering and exiting the prison every day involved interacting with a host of invisible biohazards that he knew nothing about. Upon getting sick, someone apparently sent word back to Philippi. And when he came to, as it were, when he started to get well, he discovered that the church back home found out he was sick. And he was stricken with grave concern. They were worried about him. Now you may think, huh, that doesn't seem like a really good reason <laughs> to send anyone home. I mean, good night. I get calls from my family all the time in Florida and in Montana and in New Jersey. And they say, how you doing? Oh, I'm sick. I don't panic. I say, did you go to the doctor? Oh, yeah, I'm feeling better already. Um, you know, it's not a big deal to us. Usually, rare cases. So it's difficult for us to grasp the weight of their concern. When we get sick, I remember that one time we left church one day, and we're getting ready to head out of town, so we just stopped at Care Now over here. There were three of us who were sick, diagnosed us with three different problems, gave us three different cures, and we went on our trip. No problem, no worries, literally, no worries. But if you had lived as late as even just 100 years ago, you would have had an entirely different view of illness. It was not uncommon for people who got sick to die suddenly. In the first century, there were no cures for diseases. There were no cures, no known cures for diseases. In fact, there were no medical cures for any disease before the beginning of the 1900s. Can you imagine? One article I read this week said that in the first century, it was actually unusual for people to recover from a serious illness. It was unusual. If you got a serious illness, well, you were going to die. But amazingly, Epaphroditus recovered. And it leads some commentators to believe that because of the statistical uh, st statistical sense of this, or the statistical data on this, in terms of how many people died, the death rate due to disease back in that day, some people believe that Paul healed him. That maybe it wasn't natural causes, because it was just so unusual for someone to become, to come so close to death and not die. At some point during his recovery, it occurs to him that his church family, perhaps even his own mother and father, and we have no idea whether he was married or had children, but it, he, it dawns on him that they might, they might well think he's dead. I mean, how long had it been since they received word? I mean, if he got sick, like on the, on the 1st of May, uh, they may have only gotten a letter, you know, the 30th of May. Um, they might not have gotten any word probably haven't, that he's well. In fact, they couldn't have because there hadn't been enough time. And he gets thinking about his, his church family and his friends and his, his immediate family back home. 
They witnessed the fact that for a letter to, to travel the 800 miles may have taken the better part of a month. And suddenly Epaphroditus is gripped with concern. And notice what he's concerned about. Again, verse 26, he's not concerned about himself. He's concerned, oh no, my poor, my poor people. They are the ones who sent me here. They had such high hopes on what I would accomplish for their benefit and for Paul's. And they found out, they found out weeks ago that I was sick. They probably think I'm dead. Can you imagine? He was concerned about his own church family experiencing grief and sorrow, a sense of utter helplessness. Can you imagine the anxiety of his mother not knowing if her son was dead or alive? And this goes on for week after week after week, because it has to. There's no other way to communicate. Now, conceivably, Epaphroditus could have said, look, they'll figure it out. I mean, they'll get, they'll get word. Somebody will say something to them. I mean, sooner or later, somebody's going to bring them news. And, and besides that, I mean, this is a great opportunity for me. I don't want to leave Paul. I get to minister to the apostle Paul. I mean, how many people get to do that? I don't want to go home. Somebody will take care of this matter. My mom will get over it. And once she finds out I'm alive, I get to work with the Apostle Paul. But no, as a model of the kind of humility and unity Paul was pleading for in the first few verses of chapter 2, Epaphroditus will do nothing, get this, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility will count others more significant than himself. Instead of looking out for his own interest, he was more concerned about the interest of others. You see why almost every commentary looks at this passage and says, look, what do you do with this text? You do what seems obvious. Even though the Apostle Paul is not telling us to look at it this way, he clearly has doctrine and practice that he's teaching. He uses Jesus. Paul points to his own life. Then he points to Timothy and now to Epaphroditus to give us a model of how to do what he said earlier in chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Humble yourself. Serve one another. Put the interests of other people ahead of yourself. And then we read this about Epaphroditus and we think, look, if Paul didn't intend it, obviously the Holy Spirit intended it. It's a model for how we put into practice what Paul commands. Epaphroditus is worthy of emulation because he was moved with compassion for others. He was concerned about the suffering of others rather than his own suffering and his own interests. And beloved, this is so important for us. It's so easy to minister to one another and let that ministry become callous and indifferent toward other people's problems. It's, it's real easy to allow people to slip through the cracks. I was talking with a woman yesterday after the, after the graduation, and she was saying, you know, Pastor, there are women in this church and, and in this community who when they face, they have recently faced serious problems, and their friends and church family helped them for a little while, but they really had long-term needs, and it wasn't long before people stopped ministering to them and they really needed help. And we need to think about how we can address that in the future. 
That's the kind of attitude that Epaphroditus had. He was concerned. He was concerned about them. Sometimes the lack of sensitivity comes merely as a result of our busyness. We don't have time to just drop everything and go to the hospital or go to that person's house or wherever it is. We're too busy to stop and help that person fix their flat or whatever it is. We're so busy doing the work of the ministry that we don't have time for people, especially those who have problems. Remember Wayne Mack always used to tell us, um, don't ever allow yourself to see people as problems with legs. Oh, here comes that problem with legs. You don't see them as a person anymore. You just see them as a problem. You know they're going to come to you and, and lay it all out. And sometimes we lack care as a result of impatience with people who seem perpetually needy. Yes, their suffering may be self-inflicted. Yes, it may be the result of habitual sin. But we're called to have the heart of Jesus. We're called to be patient with them. It doesn't mean we don't discipline. We do. We, we do call out sin when there's sin, and it's appropriate to call out. But do you remember, you remember that time in the Gospels where Jesus and his disciples, I mean, at one point it said they were so busy, there were so many people clamoring for them, they didn't even have time to eat. And Jesus finally says, all right, you guys, let's go. Get in the boat. Let's get away just for a little while. They get in the boat. Remember what happened? They rode and they rode. and they, This isn't the storm story. This is just they rode and they rode. And Jesus has got a place, a retreat, a, 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 uh, a wilderness where nobody, nobody lives there, hardly anybody travels there, and they're just going to go and throw themselves down on the grass and say, thank you. Can we just sleep for an hour? Can we just have a decent meal and be uninterrupted? And they get halfway across the lake, three-quarters of the way across the lake, and they look up to where they're going to dock, and there's a crowd. They figured out where they were going. And when they were approaching the shore, they're all clamoring to the edge, and they're coming to him. And you remember what the text says about Jesus? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. Compassion. You know what? I need, I need more of that. I need more of that. And I don't know if any of you else do. How about we have a show of hands? I, I got mine up. I, I need more. <laughs> more compassion. Let's not be impatient with one another. Let's be like Jesus, even when we're busy. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Epaphras had, Epaphroditus, I keep saying Epaphras, and I've just told you that that's not the same guy. Epaphroditus had the attitude of Christ who humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and served, not only to the point of exhaustion, but even to the point of death. He was at death's door. In fact, at the end of all of this, in verse 30, it says he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. He laid his life down for Paul and others. What an example of this high calling Epaphras is for us. 
And what an example he would be for the church of Philippi when he arrived home. And Paul wanted to make sure they didn't miss that. He wanted them to know Epaphras' story. And he wanted them to see him as the model of the very things he was exhorting them to be like in this letter that Epaphroditus was bringing to them. Now, before we move on, what we've said so far is that he is worthy of imitation because he exemplifies spiritual balance. Secondly, that he's moved with compassion, verse 26. But we need to be careful that we don't rush through this. Whenever you study a, a passage of Scripture, your first thing on your mind should not be, you know, what, what can this tell me about how to live life better? You know, give me some good biblical spiritual hacks to make my life better. Um, rather, we should ask, this passage teach me about God. And this passage says something specifically about God. Look at verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. And literally it means he moved next door to death. Or we would say he was at death's door. His neighbor, his nearest neighbor was death. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God, isn't that, isn't that great? Don't you love all the but gods? Here's another one. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. See, telling us about God. This is the God of all compassion and all tenderness and mercy. You look back at, at, at verse 1 of this chapter. Can you see verse 1 there? You got your Bible open? Verse 1, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, has Christ ever encouraged you? He's about ready to give a strong exhortation, and he's saying, remember, remember how blessed you are. If there's been any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection or sympathy. You had any of that? Paul's saying, yeah. You remember when Epaphroditus was sick? We had the tender mercies of God poured out on us. How? He didn't die. <laughs> he was supposed to die. In our minds, he, he, was, he was gone but he didn't die. The message here is that we have a God who truly cares about his people. That's why Christ cared about the crowds even when he was exhausted and wanted to go on retreat, and he didn't. He's concerned about our sickness. He's concerned about our sorrow. And in his mercy, he often revives and relieves us. He didn't want the church of Philippi to experience the grief of losing this dear brother. And he didn't want Paul to be overwhelmed with sorrow. You know, sometimes when God rescues me or my family from whatever it is, maybe it's financial crisis or whether it's illness or whatever it is, um, you know, you step back and you think, why, Lord, why? Why did, why did, you, why did you rescue us? And, I, and the reason I ask the question is because I know I didn't earn it. 
Why did you rescue us? Even after all the complaining in the middle of our struggle, you rescued us. Why? And the answer is because he loves us. He loves us. He didn't want Paul to be overwhelmed with sorrow upon sorrow. Sorrow upon sorrow is kind of like the waves of a sea. Wave after wave of sorrow. You know what Paul, Paul is saying? Look, if he had died, it would have been wave after wave, not of refreshing streams of water, but of grief and sorrow for me and for the Philippians. Are you suffering? God cares about that. He loves you. He cares for you. He's not obligated to grant healing, but sometimes he does just because he loves you. Because God has been so merciful to Epaphroditus, Paul was, watch this, all the more eager to send him home to his loved ones. Uh, No doubt they perhaps got word that he was coming, I would hope, maybe not. But they want, Paul wanted them to see the mercy of God. They wanted, he wanted Epaphroditus to be a living testimony to the mercy of God. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Oh, there's a new word, anxious. Paul's Paul doesn't want to have the sorrow, but then he's got this anxiety thing he's concerned about. He's a little bit anxious about this. And I don't know, you could say, well, was that sinful or not? I don't know. Look, he's struggling, he's a human. He's struggling with anxiety, and you've got to ask yourself, what's he anxious about? Uh, He's healed, right? Epaphroditus is healed. Here's what I think he's anxious about. He feels responsible for this whole thing. I mean... He's in prison. The only reason this would have happened to Epaphroditus is because I'm in prison. They would have never put his life in jeopardy if it wasn't for me getting locked up. Now he did it for the glory of Christ, yes. But you know he had to feel responsible. He wanted to make sure Epaphroditus got home and delivered word just by his presence and by letter that he had been faithful to the end, even willing to sacrifice his own life for the glory of God and the well-being of Paul, and he wanted his church family and no doubt his immediate family to rejoice upon seeing him. And when they do, Paul saying, yes, anxiety lifted. He's home safe. It doesn't mean that's the end of his ministry, but this severe crisis for the church would be over. It's it's these little things that if you pay attention to them in the Bible, you think, well, God cares about these little nitty-gritty personal crises and experiences, and it should be a comfort to us. In any case, the third reason Epaphroditus is worthy of imitation is because, number three, he had courage to take risks for God. 29 and 30. So, Paul says, with all of this in mind, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service to me. Now that wasn't a condemnation of the Philippians. He's not saying you people blew it and 
the guy you're, you're tempted to condemn has been successful. You know, let's get everything right. No, he's, he's just saying, I understand you couldn't possibly minister to me personally. That's why you sent Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus came to do what you could not do. And so don't read that as pejorative. It's not. But once again, we notice that Paul is concerned about how the Philippians will receive him when he returns home prematurely. How are they to receive him? Not just with joy, but he says with all joy. And, and the word all joy there means with every kind of joy. Let there be singing. Let there be clapping. Let there be laughter. Let there be tears. Let there be rejoicing. They were to express gladness with a heart full of joy. They would be, if it were in our time, they'd be at the airport waiting with signs and, if you're like my family, with shouts and screams and whoops and who knows what else. They were not to be in the slightest hesitant or suspicious or reluctant. Rather, they are to honor him and men like him. In other words, he was to be prized. Epaphroditus was to be treasured. He was to be given a place of status in the church. Why? Because like Jesus, he had been willing to deny himself and literally take up his cross. Epaphroditus was willing to obey that command. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. You know what that means? It doesn't mean, you know, wear a cross around your neck. It doesn't mean put up with your, you know, meddling mother-in-law. That's not what it's about. It's about this. You be willing to suffer the shame of Christ as Christ suffered shame on your behalf. And you be willing to suffer that even if it cost you your life, even if you die in the effort. He risked his life for the growth of the gospel and nearly died. The obvious question for me and for you is this. When was the last time you took the risk? Any risk. When was the last time you risked something for the sake of gospel growth? When was the last time you risked something to share the gospel with someone or to stand up for righteousness, true righteousness, not your personal preferences. When was the last time you, you laid down your life, your, your priorities, your, your desires, your passions for someone else in a way that may very well cost you? When, when was the last time, perhaps, have you ever seen someone in sin and you know that's leading to disaster and you stepped in and risked that friendship for their sake and for the glory of God? This was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was willing to lay it on the line. Paul, what do you need me to do? By life or by death, I'll do it, and I'll do it well. What an attitude. What an attitude. You've got to love it. You've got to not only love it, but you've got you to follow it. That's what Paul wants for us. He doesn't want us just to read about these things and go away and say, wow, that was a really interesting story. I never saw that before. You want to come away saying, well, Epaphroditus, what a man. Daniel Wong, man, I still, still don't pray like he did. 
How's God calling you to change? What do you see in the life of Timothy, the life of Paul, the life of our Gentile brother Epaphroditus? You look at it and say, yeah, I need more of that. And what are you going to do about it? I mean, the part of the context here, work out your own salvation. How are you going to work on this? Who are, going to, who are you going to ask to help you? This is the body of Christ. We help one another grow in Christ. We don't just show up. You know what? If you were Catholic, you would have showed up this morning for church with people you don't know. You would have done the genuflecting and the Hail Mary or, or whatever they do during the service. You would have listened to the homily and you would have left. Maybe you gave some money. But there was no family. There was no fellowship. There was no relationships it was just do your spiritual duty. But you know, that's not the way God designed the church. We are to help one another. Almost all of the pronouns in the New Testament as related to commands in the church are plural. We're not to do them alone. We should do them together and help one another. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you, you look at this, you hear these things and all of the suffering and the traveling and the expenditure of money and the risk and everything, and, and you might be thinking, really, for what? And the answer is, for your soul, for your salvation. That's why Christians do these things. That's why historically Christians have always done these things, laying their life out because we believe God when God says this life is not all there is, that death is coming and it's not very far away, and when it comes, you will stand before the judgment and your life will be weighed in the balance. And the question will not be, were you good enough? But rather, did you trust Christ? Did you throw all, the, all of the weight of your hope on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ? That's your only hope. And it's your every hope if you would receive it. I pray that you would receive it today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this hour and for this exhortation, these truths, not only here but in Sunday school. Father, may we not leave as forgetful hearers but effectual doers who hear the word of God and do it. Help us to take care how we listen and to be found obedient when the master comes, laboring, in his field of harvest for the glory of God and the joy of those who will believe. And bless us today, Father, as we fellowship together, even here. I pray before we leave there would be ministry happening. And then later today as we share some time out, outdoors together as a church, may our conversations honor you and may they point one another to greater love for you and your church. These things, Father, we ask in accordance with your word and in the name of Jesus. Amen.